Our passage this Lord's Day comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 56. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 56. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray. Father, how we love you, O Lord. God, we love you for your love toward us. God, we love you because you are our rock and our redeemer. It is because of your steadfast love and covenant faithfulness toward us that we find ourselves here today in the first place. It's because of the kindness that you have shown us in Christ that the gates of righteousness have opened up, that we may go in. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise and bless you that you have become our salvation. You are forever worthy of our adoration and worship, our obedience, our allegiance. Now, Lord, I pray that you would come and quiet our hearts as we prepare to hear your word, silence every other voice, every distraction, Magnify the name of your son, Lord, as we consider his death together. Do a work in our hearts, O God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we return once again uh, this Lord's Day to the cross. And we have seen the, the loud cries of the, the angry mobs as they have uh, said, crucify, crucify him. We've seen how uh, the soldiers relentlessly mocked Christ. 
We've seen the way that the religious leaders approved of it all. Well, now we come to about the sixth hour. That is roughly noon in our vernacular. And it says that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three hours later, while the sun's light failed. The the heavens themselves began to offer their commentary under the, the direction of the Father on the death of his son. God the Father interrupts the mocking and the the railing of the crowds to let creation testify in this mighty way and to speak by way of visible signs demonstrating the activity of the Lord, the purposes of his will in the death of his son. The son, the Bible says, failed. This was not an eclipse. Uh, Passover happened when there was a full moon and an eclipse. An eclipse would not have been possible. It wouldn't have lasted for three hours either. So this is not a coincidence. This says in no uncertain terms that while it is true that Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus was at the same time delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He, the father, has put him, the son, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, Isaiah 53. For three hours, there was darkness over the whole land. You had this this visible sermon that proclaimed, if we had to summarize it in one word, judgment. It's reminiscent of that, that day of the Lord imagery that you see in books like Amos and Joel and Zephaniah. And in Amos chapter eight, for example, you find the judge of all of the earth going uh, to the people of God and declaring, and on that day, pointing to that final day of the Lord, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In Joel chapter two, the Lord talks about how he will come and he'll, he will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Well, here you have at the death of Jesus Christ, a foretaste of that day a foretaste of that that great and awesome day of the Lord in which both judgment and salvation are intermingled. A judgment for all of those who reject Jesus as the Messiah of God and salvation for those who call on him, who call on his name. Now, when Jesus died at uh, Golgotha, this isn't that final day. Mind you, but here at Golgotha, the Lord offers a shadow of it. Uh, he, He offers this foretaste as judgment falls not on God's people, 
but on God's Son. Darkness descends, the earth begins to shake, tombs are opened up, many bodies of saints who are fallen asleep are raised, and they come out of their tombs. And they go in later into the city of Jerusalem. So the Lord graciously offers these helps and these aids to a lost and a dying world to arouse their attention. Helps and aids so that the eyes of their hearts might be opened up to see what is going on here as the self-proclaimed Messiah dies, stretched out on a cross. Now, church, you find one of those most glorious helps in verse 45 where it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Why is that a help? Why is this event so significant? Well, in order to get at an answer to that question, you have to first understand the purpose of the curtain in the first place. The curtain that is referenced here in verse 45 is what you find described in the book of Exodus, chapter 26 and verse 31. When God gave instruction for the uh, construction of the tabernacle, he told Moses this. This is Exodus 26, beginning in verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Now, still, why was that necessary? Why was there a veil that was needed in the first place. Well, the Lord continues, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. The 26th chapter of the book of Exodus deals with these two inner rooms within the tabernacle or the, the temple, the, the holy place and the most holy place or the, the, the holy of holies. Uh, the Holy of Holies was that innermost third of that larger space, two-thirds devoted to the holy place, one-third to the Holy of Holies. The veil served to cut off that place of God's special presence where he dwelt enthroned between the cherubim that hovered over the mercy seat. It might be helpful for us to know that the veil that is described here, or the curtain, wasn't some kind of sheer, uh, translucent kind of fabric. We tend to think of a veil that, that way. We think of a bride's veil, for, for example, something that's uh, very thin and transparent, just gossamer light. That, that's not the case here. This is a very heavy uh, double curtain. Uh, it is uh, described by way of tradition as being a hand breadth in thickness. Now, just to underscore the significance of the veil, listen to what the Lord tells Moses in Leviticus 16 and verse two. He says, tell Aaron, your brother, 
not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. So the veil serves a vital purpose in the truest sense of that word and that it reminds us that God is holy and we are not. And that's what this this threat of death was based upon in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse two, as it's speaking about the day of atonement and when you can go in and when you may not. This reminds us, this veil, that our sins have made a separation between us and our God, that no one can see God and live. And you, you, you have that visibly portrayed in the physical construction of the tabernacle. So God's presence on earth represented both a grace and a threat. That's that's this great tension that you find represented in the tabernacle. God has come to dwell in the midst of his people in the midst of Israel, his chosen people, he's come and he has drawn near from heaven to earth. His wonderful, glorious presence has condescended. There is a sanctuary on earth and yet not even Aaron can enter in to that place except with the most careful of preparation and that but once a year. And the rest of the nation, the rest of Israel will never enter in. They'll never be able to go in. There's a veil to separate man and God. The Holy of Holies is a witness to the Lord's mercy and his covenant love, but is also a witness to his fearfulness and that there is a barrier here. There's a barrier to protect man from God you can say, that we may not die. Now, if, there, if there's something about this arrangement that suggests to you unfinished business in terms of God's redemptive purposes on earth, you're exactly right. You're exactly on the right track. And the, the writer to the book of Hebrews or to the Hebrews draws this out under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter nine, You may want to turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter nine, I'm gonna be reading from verse seven, but it talks there about these two different sections within the temple and how the priests go regularly into that first section and they perform their ritual duties there. They go all of the time into that. This is Hebrews chapter nine, beginning in verse seven. But into the second Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then he says this, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, 
Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So you see what the writer there says. The Holy Spirit bore witness through the institution of the temple itself that this arrangement of worship and sacrifices and cleansing, all of these things that are associated with the temple that were carried out under the old covenant, they were provisional, they were imperfect, they were incomplete. The way into the holy places has not yet been opened. There is a time of reformation still to come. Reformation that found its fulfillment and came to pass in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brought that reformation to pass, specifically through his sacrificial death. Which brings us to this wonderful contrast Uh, Hebrews 9 continues to draw out. If you look at verse 11, he says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Christ appeared, he offered up himself and he served both as priest and as sacrifice. You find the two in the one. Having no need to offer sins or sacrifices first for his own sins, the holy, spotless Lamb of God lays down his life so that our consciences truly could be purified. That our our spirits, not our flesh, not our body, only might be sanctified and not through these outward ritual washings, but by means of Christ's blood, by grace through faith, cleansed, truly purified in the inner man. When Christ appeared, the curtain of the temple is torn into two, thus signifying that the way into the holy places has been opened up. The barriers have been removed. That perfect sacrifice is complete. It's been provided for. How does sinful man have access to a holy God through the body of Jesus Christ, slain from the foundation of the world? So brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the one who gives us access to God. He gives us all access to God. Not some elite class of priests, not just those descended from the line of Aaron, but every needy sinner. That's the hope of the gospel. Continue with me. Look at what the writer of the Hebrews says in light of this. Go down to chapter 10, uh, verse 11. Therefore, brothers, since we have what? Confidence. 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, now we have confidence to enter the holy place. What holy places are we talking about? We're not talking, dear ones, about an earthly temple, not a temple made with hands, but the greater and more perfect tent. What is he talking about here? Well, toward the end of the book of Revelation, as, as John's uh, vision begins to, to reach its apex, its, its climax there, he says in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So we're talking about the very presence of God and the liberty that we have in Christ to enter therein, to enter into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and enjoy fellowship with the Father to dwell forever with him. The earthly temple with its furnishings and its rites, the writer to the Hebrews says represented just copies of those heavenly things. That's all they were. And it's because the veil was rent that we enter the holy places, not some physical temple, but the presence of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And again, not just enter, but enter with confidence. The Bible says we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, if you ever find yourself thinking about your relationship with God in something that is, could, could be described as having something other than confidence, you need to ask yourself on what basis or by what means do I come into the presence of the Father? Because if you understand the greatness and the fullness and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to understand this word, confidence. Because I come not through myself, not through anything that I've done, not through any work that I have performed, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his imputed righteousness given to me. That's what this rent veil signifies. The work is finished the way has been opened up through Jesus' blood. The other gospel writers will tell you that the, the veil was rent from top to bottom, alerting us to this, this unmistakable fact. This is a divine rending. You know, this was no work of man. Uh, this wasn't an accident. There wasn't a priest that actually accidentally stumbled on the bottom of, of the curtain and, and tore it apart. It was rent from top to bottom. This was a divine rending. God is the one that tore it apart. 
And so there is here in the rending of the veil an invitation. There is an urging. There is a call, whether you are a believer or not, to draw near to God through a temple not made with hands, through this new and living way that he opened up for us through his flesh. Now, how do we do that? How do we draw near? Well, not by walking into a physical gate, but by putting our trust in Christ, by coming to God through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is described in the scriptures as the true and better tabernacle. That's why he dared to say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking, John says, about the temple of his body. We come through him. So there is access opened up, but then there is also judgment poured out on the temple and on its sacrificial system. You remember how as Jesus approached the city, he said that Israel's house was forsaken. And the rending of the temple veil is one of the evidences of that. It demonstrated that this center of God's activity would no longer be focused on a physical location, but in the hearts of men, in the church. The same idea applies to our worship of him. Uh, That is one of the reasons it's good to resist uh, the idea of calling this room a sanctuary. This room is not where the presence of God dwells. We are the temple of the living God. Earlier in Jesus's ministry, you remember how he encountered the woman of of Samaria and she asked him what the, the right mountain to worship him, worship the father was. Is it Mount Gerizim or should we go over to Jerusalem? And Jesus says this, he says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Christ's condescension and specifically his death signaled the inauguration of that hour. In a very short time, that rent veil would be followed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem. We, though, are the new temple wherein the Spirit of God delights to dwell. So this is a transformative event. It's something that that signals the beginning of a new era in redemptive history, uh, the institution of a new covenant, a better covenant. By the time the epistle to the Hebrews begins to make its way around, he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, with this having been accomplished, we turn our attention to verse 46, 
where it says this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The final words of the Lord Jesus on the cross. It was then, once the veil was rent in two, it was then and only then, having completed the work that he was sent to do, could he yield up his spirit to the Father. It was only after it was finished that he breathed his last. It's also here, you'll, you'll note that the abandonment that he had previously known and that was expressed in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, now is brought to an end. And the intimacy that he'd known with the Father before the foundation of the world is restored. No longer does he cry, my God, my God, but my Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And church, this is not just a statement. This is an expression of of deepest trust as, as he breathes his last. It is the most exemplary demonstration of faith in the the hour of severest darkness and affliction and agony. Uh, Jesus takes his words here from Psalm 31.5 where the psalmist makes the Lord his refuge in the midst of hostility and persecution. The psalmist cries out for Yahweh's deliverance asking that the Lord would incline his ear that he would come, that he would rescue him speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your, in, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, Faithful God. Or consider the words of Isaiah chapter chapter 50, verses 6 and 8. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. As Jesus prepares to breathe his last, he rests in the faithfulness of God, even in his dying breaths, trusting that the Father will raise him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the way for the saints of God to die. Entrusting your soul to the care of God in rest, in hope, in expectation of resurrection. We go as Christians to our graves ready to enter the presence of God, clinging to his word, owning him just as the son did 
as father. Blessed, the Bible says, are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Now, Luke gives us a a variety of different reactions in response to the death of Christ and the events that surround it. Five different individuals or groups. And I want to look at each one of those individuals or groups with you today. First, we come to an infidel converted in verse 47. An infidel converted. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Here you have a man who went to the cross, an enemy of God, and he came home a friend. This is a man we, we must say it again. This is a man who had been party with all of those who had stripped Christ of his clothes, who had arrayed him in that splendid uh, clothing just for the sake of mockery. He, with the other soldiers, had cre- treated Christ contemptuously. He had derided him, bowing the knee before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, from his own lips, had flung insults and revilings. Uh, No doubt he joined in with the others, spitting on Christ, supervising the driving of the nails through his hands, after which you remember how they offered to Jesus sour wine. He was party to it all, being a centurion, a captain, over a hundred men. He had the authority to step in if he had wanted to, but he didn't do that. He gave approval to it all. But while all of this was going on, God began to do something else. God began to do a work in this man's heart. No doubt Christ's prayer from the cross had been impressed upon his heart. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Savior's petition that they not be treated as their sins deserved. The, 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 the assurance of pardon, this promise of everlasting life that he had granted to the thief. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There were these cosmic signs. There was this prayer of trust and faith in the Father. Well, now taking it all in, this man who had had his hands in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus had his conscience pricked. He had his his spirit convicted to the point where he could no longer hold it in until at last he lets out this utterance of worship. He praises God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus was without guilt. He was innocent, the one that we crucified, the one that we nailed to the cross. He praised God over it. He exults in the righteousness and the perfection of the one he has just helped kill. Jesus breathes his last, rejected by his own people, 
and the Gentile praises God, lifts up his voice in worship to the Father. What good news this is for callous sinners. What hope this bears for enemies of Christ, such as we all once were. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Understand, dear ones, beloved, if you are not a Christian today, if you're not someone that claims Christ as Savior and Lord, if you're in this man's shoes, in other words, and you came in through those doors today as an enemy of God, the thing that separates you from the rest of us is not that you hate God and the rest of us are all you know, basically good people who happen to love God. That's not true. That's not true at all. We were all once enemies of God, every single one of us. But by God's grace, we have come to see that Christ died for us. He died for us while we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. God showed his love for us in this, that while all of this was true, while all of this was true of our, of our condition, still Jesus died. He died for his enemies. Jesus died, the innocent in place of the guilty, that we might be reconciled to God, that enemies of God could become his friends. Are you his friend today? Well, now we come to a different scene in verse 48 with the rest of the people and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. What a word that is in the biblical text there, a spectacle. That's how they regarded what was happening there at Golgotha. That's why they came out to that place to gawk at this site. When the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. By this point in the day, now six hours into this ordeal, Jesus's body now hangs lifeless on the cross. Now these crowds, it, it, is, it is instructive for us to, to notice this, have seen all of the same things that the centurion saw. And yet their response is not the same, is it? In fact, if you look at the parallels between verses 47 and, verses, and verse 48, it's instructive. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. But then you look at the latter part of verse 48. When the crowds saw what had taken place, they beat their brass. So Luke presents for us two ways of seeing. 
he sets before us two ways these different parties take in and respond to what they see. The centurion on the one hand and all of the crowds on the other. The centurion believes, he rejoices, he praises God, he glories in the righteousness of Christ. The crowds, they see the same event outwardly speaking. They witness all of the same things. And it's true that they also experience a change. They experience a change in their perspective. They go out for this spectacle to see this show. And somewhere along the the way, they realize this isn't just a circus act. What, what, What this is not just something to go out and get entertainment out of. Something other than what you would normally find happening on this hill called Golgotha is going on with this man called Jesus of Nazareth. He was not a spectacle to be ogled at. And now they find themselves troubled, so much so that they go home beating their breasts, something that is associated with mourning. They were sorrowful, but there's no indication here that the the sorrow that they experienced gave way to true faith and true repentance. In fact, Luke leaves us with this distinct impression that the grief they knew was much closer to that worldly grief that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that kind of grief that that is full of regret and in the end leads to death. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. These crowds are beset with grief and sorrow and and distress, but unlike the centurion, they don't run to Jesus with that sorrow, with their cares. They don't find the Lord to be their refuge. They just go home. They go home sick and sore, overburdened, miserable, heavy laden. And so I would say to you, dear ones, if you look at the the, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, and you get a sense in your own mind's eye of your wretchedness, of your own sinfulness, run to Jesus and not away. Take those burdens, take your cares, take your sin and go to the one who will bear them away. Take take them to the one in whom forgiveness is found. Praise God with the centurion that Christ's soul has made an offering for guilt, that by his knowledge, but by, by knowing him, he shall make the, 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 his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear your iniquities. He'll take them away. Go to him. So you have the centurion. You have the crowds. In verse 49, you have his acquaintances. This is the third group. What are they doing? And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
in the hours of Jesus's greatest agony, his closest friends, his companions, their faith waned. They stand at a distance. This is foretold in Psalm 38. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. There were very few that joined him at the foot of the cross among all of the soldiers and uh, the scornful crowd. I think this is something that challenges us to, to consider what faith looks like in the hour of testing. Now in verse 50, you have the fourth response, that of Joseph of Arimathea. Luke tells us that he was a member of the council, which is to say the Sanhedrin. Yes, this is the same Sanhedrin that convicted the Lord Jesus Christ of crimes that were punishable by death. What does that tell you? Sometimes you find followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the most unlikely places imaginable. And what a delight it is when you do. God has his people in all sorts of places. The Bible tells us three things about Joseph, three things that are to be commended and pursued by the people of God today. First, it says that he was a man of character. He was a good and righteous man. Joseph loved what is true and good and right and honorable, and he hated what is false and wicked. Second, he was a man of courage. He had not consented to the council's decision and action. He was a dissenter. And so throughout the the proceedings of those trials, it's safe to say that Joseph would have found opportunities to stand up and say, I I cannot consent to this. I cannot consent to sending an innocent man to die. This is wrong. Even when it was one man against 69 other men, he didn't just go along with things. He was courageous for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that commitment to the Lord, to the truth, continued to the very final hours of Jesus' death and even beyond to the grave. Third, he was a man of faith. He was looking to the kingdom of God. His heart was set in eager expectation on the promises of God. The longing of Joseph of Arimathea's heart was to see the dawn of the messianic kingdom, to see God's promises brought to fruition. He was one of the remnant like Simeon, who was introduced at the beginning of this book in chapter two, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He knew what God had said. He was waiting in full faith on that fulfillment. Well, Joseph goes and he he asks Pilate for the corpse of Jesus Christ. Mark tells us that he went and he took courage and he asks Pilate for the body. And Pilate 
after ensuring that Jesus really had died, uh, gives Joseph permission. Uh, Joseph goes and he, he takes Jesus's body down. You imagine him pulling out the nails, the dead, lifeless body of the Lord Jesus Christ falling down upon his own. And he cares for Christ's remains, wrapping him in a linen shroud, laying him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. This is to fulfill Isaiah 53, verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. What a strange paradox uh, you have there. Made his grave with the wicked and yet he's buried with a rich man, in a rich man's place. This place that is specially consecrated where no one else has ever yet been laid. It reminds you of the cult that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This humble, lowly animal and yet no one has ever ridden upon it. John tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus anoint Jesus's body with about 75 pounds of spices. Everything here is meant to signify royalty. You're looking at someone with kingly qualities. He may have been crucified in shame, but he is buried in honor. Now, finally, we come to the fifth and the last group of responders, the women who had come with him from Galilee. Now, first notice here how Luke is careful to say they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Pilate had confirmed it. The women had witnessed it. Jesus had truly died. They saw how his body was laid. It was the day of preparation, meaning the day before the Sabbath. It was the day before the feast when everything needed to be prepared so that when the Sabbath day came, they could rest in obedience to God's command. And so the women go home in order to prepare to anoint Jesus's body with even more spices and ointment the day after the Sabbath. It is now Friday evening. Uh, they can't do that on Saturday on the Sabbath. And so they're going to come back on Sunday. Now, church, what does that tell you? They are not looking forward with any expectation of a resurrection at this point. Which, by the way, you notice here how Luke does not feel obliged in any way to tidy up his gospel account before it, it goes to print, before it goes out. He doesn't send it to an editorial review team to clean things up. And if that means that Jesus's own disciples find themselves faltering at this most critical of hours, he's going to report it as he sees it. But where there is an absence of depth of faith 
and a profound understanding of what's to come, there is no small amount of affection for the one that they have come to follow. There may be weak faith, but there's loving hearts. And maybe there's something that we can glean here for ourselves. That when we can't work out how things are going to work out, we can still resolve it in ourselves to hold fast to the one we love. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind. Lord, help us in this, amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory that the veil has been rent. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Lord, that because of his blood, we can have confidence to come before your presence, confidence in knowing that we'll find mercy for our sin, confidence to know that we'll find grace for our need. Lord, confidence to know that we will not be turned away, that you delight to receive us as we come through him. God, thank you for the fellowship that we have with you in Christ. Lord, we know that, that drops of tears could never repay the debt of love that we owe. And so, Lord, we give ourselves away to you. It's all that we can do. Lord, I pray that your name would be lifted up as we follow you in the obedience of faith, that you would delight in your people, O oh God. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.